Hello, and welcome to a brand new episode of Infinite Games, where every week we sit down with a founder, operator, or investor working at the edge of what's next. I'm Daniel Scribner, and on the show today, I sit down with Mike Saul, co-founder and CEO of the decentralized lending protocol Goldfinch, which went live on Coinbase and other crypto exchanges on January 11th under the ticker symbol GDFI. Goldfinch is our first deep dive into the world of decentralized finance, which aims to displace traditional banks and financial institutions with fair, decentralized, community-controlled protocols. And when it comes to DeFi, one of the hardest problems to solve has been lending against real-world assets globally. Things like businesses and real estate in a truly decentralized way, because that problem is incredibly hard to solve. You need to figure out how to vet borrowers all around the world, how to KYC lenders from every country imaginable, how to determine when to underwrite a loan based on the actions of thousands and even millions of users. This is exactly what Goldfinch has done. They recently closed a second round of financing valuing their network at $400 million, which was led by A16Z, and have proven they can fill multi-million dollar loans in mere hours instead of days. In this episode, we get into exactly how they've solved this problem, how the protocol works, why it's important, and what it unlocks in an increasingly interconnected financial world. To learn more about Goldfinch, visit goldfinch.finance or follow them on Twitter at goldfinch underscore fi. You can also follow Mike Saul on Twitter at Saul, S-A-L-L. For links to everything we discuss, you can find the full show notes at outlieracademy.com slash 76. Please enjoy my conversation with Mike Saul of the decentralized lending protocol, Goldfinch. Mike, thank you so much for coming on Infinite Games. I'm so excited to chat with you today. Yeah, thanks for having me. So we're going to spend all of today talking about Goldfinch, which is a new protocol that's going to launch in early 2022. And I wanted to ask, we'll take a departure for a second, talk a little bit about your background. But I want to ask if you could just paint a picture for people of the big problem that Goldfinch is solving and maybe the elevator pitch around how you're approaching solving that problem. Yeah. When I talk about the problem, there's two angles to get at. One is from the crypto perspective and one is from broader global perspective. Starting from the global perspective, we were talking to all of these businesses around the world, especially like fintech and lending businesses, where they're in the business of making loans out to other folks and they need more capital to grow their business, to make more loans out. And they tend to need in the range of a few hundred thousand dollars up to 10, 20 million dollars. And this range is difficult for them to get the capital because they're too large for the local capital markets, but then they're too small for the really large institutional funds that like to write like 50 million dollar checks to make it worth it to do sort of like foreign investing and so we talked to all these businesses and they really needed capital and we realized oh crypto can help solve this and then on the crypto side there's technical problem which is there are existing lending protocols like Aave and Compound and the way that they work is you put up say $150 of ETH in order to get a loan of borrow about $100 for that. And so you have to over collateralize all of the amount you borrow with other crypto. But these businesses around the world, and we're talking to folks in Brazil and Nigeria and Indonesia all around, they don't have money because they're looking to borrow money. So the problem that we're solving from the crypto perspective is how do you enable borrowing without having crypto collateral? and being able to show you're trustworthy in other ways. So that's like the high level technical problem and like the global problem that we're solving. Yeah, which is fascinating. And we'll get to, I think everyone listening probably grasps how big a 
problem and opportunity that is. But we'll get to that and talk about it in a little bit of nuance. And I encourage anyone that's listening to follow along, feel free to pull up goldfinch.finance just to read through and look a little bit at what Goldfinch is building. I want to ask you before we go any further, just a couple of background questions because you have a really interesting background. So before founding Goldfinch, if we go back a little bit, you were the head of data science at Medium for four years. That's a super interesting position to be in. It's become obviously a big, prominent platform, especially in crypto, for people to share all sorts of news and events and announcements. What was that role? And I guess, what did you learn in that role? The high-level role was kind of like, okay, let's use the data that we have to make the product good. And so it's like, okay, how do we understand from the data what we need to do? And so a lot of the learnings were about what kinds of things are people looking to do and where do they spend their time? And also part of that, we started building out the initial recommendation engines for like machine learning models that were figuring out what posts to show people in different places. And it was a little while ago at this point, but some of the learnings there were that we started finding like certain kinds of topics that people wanted to read about and making sure that we were showing those topics to them. And then we also found things like there was a large correlation between how much time people spent into writing their posts and then how successful they were, like an indication of the amount of effort. And we sort of started to learn that there were no like silver bullets when it comes to producing content that other people want to read. Like you got to just work hard and do good work. And that's what ends up getting people's attention. Yeah, super interesting. One of the reasons I want to ask that question is this is a topic that comes up all the time talking with early stage founders is one, what data to be paying attention to, two, how to go about collecting that data. And then I feel like a third one is just how much time should we be spent focused on quantitative aspects of the business as opposed to trusting our gut, trusting our intuition about what to build. So I'm just going to lob that out as a not super easy open-ended question. (laughs) If you were like sitting down with a founder or talking with other founders, is there any advice you would give them in terms of just how to think about data? And that could be stage dependent, just any insights there, general things that are applicable. A fun fact that you wouldn't expect a prior like head of data science to say, which is on the Goldfinch finance site, we don't have any Google analytics like anywhere. We don't even like bother with it. And part of it is privacy thing. We don't want to have Google analytics tracking that information. But also I've personally never really found Google analytics to be helpful for like any of the questions that my teams were digging into or that I was digging into at these companies. And I hear a lot about folks being like, okay, we got to like add the data in here because the data is going to be useful later on. And this idea that like, oh, you just throw data at it and you'll get the answer that you need to something later on in the future. And I've never found that to be super helpful. Usually it's coming up with like, what are the specific questions that we have? What do we need to know to be able to make some good decisions here? And then what's the data that we need in order to help make better decisions there? And then let's implement that specific data and make sure we have that. And so from my experience have come to this, okay, if we don't know how we're going to use the data, then just like, don't bother. Usually it's more clear, like, oh, we have to know, like, how many people are using this particular feature or like how much are people actually spending on this thing? Then we have to make sure we have the data so we can answer that so that we can figure out what to do next. But I think I would say like to other folks, this is probably counter to like what other data sort of professionals might say, but I don't think it's necessary to just like get all the data all up front, no matter what, like it's important to know exactly what questions that data is going to help answer. 
That makes me feel vindicated. And I'm so glad I asked that question <laughs> in part because, I mean, I think just your note there, if I could try to restate it, because I've heard that as well, too. It's just the data in quotes is some oracle that's intelligent that's going to give you insights. And it's like, no, it's not going to give you anything. It's just going to be a confusing mess of a bunch of different noisy data points. And so it sounds like the advice is one, generally don't collect data unless you know exactly how you're going to use it. And then two, just think deeply about what you want to learn and then focus on just collecting data around those points. I'm kind of getting that right. I'll give actually an example there too, which is when I was at Medium, we did this whole thing to like add certain attributes at the end of URL so that when anyone went to any URL, you could kind of like have a sense of where they came from, from like a different URL. And it was like this whole way of implementing data. We saw that BuzzFeed was doing something similar and it just sounded super cool. We're like, we got to do it. And it was kind of like, what are we going to use it for? We weren't totally sure, but it was super cool. We better implement it. And we spent all this time implementing it. And then we just didn't need it for anything after that. And we ended up basically getting rid of it soon after. And so I would say it's like, we don't really know what we're going to use it for. It's not worth spending all the time to make sure all the data is in place. Yeah. I'll ask one final question. I've had a chance to spend a little bit of time with Ev Williams, who was the founder of Medium. I think he's just really interesting and amazing and very intelligent and thoughtful about what he builds. What was it like to work with him? Anything you learned from Medium from Ev? I feel like I learned a lot about building products and how you think about prioritizing different things. And I don't have any like big pieces of wisdom or just the intuition that I think I built just by watching him make different decisions. And then he's very inspiring the way he talks about product and vision and what he's building and is really good at framing things that we were always working on in terms of the broader picture and like the longer term plan. And I think I learned that is also super important, just like seeing how inspired I felt after he was sharing the different things that we were working on, the importance of framing things in that way too. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It seems like he's really good at this concept that Ray Dalio talks about in principles of navigating levels. And I feel like good founders all, they can go to the high level. They can always frame up the vision in the broader picture. They can drop way down. They can give helpful insights there and being able to go up and down that stack. I wanted to ask a little bit about, so before founding Goldfinch, you also spent time at Coinbase and you were the head of product analytics there. And I want to ask a couple questions because one, I haven't heard of that title. And two, it's just too fascinating to not ask questions. So I guess maybe the first one is, what were you responsible for in that role? And maybe if you could talk a little bit about when you joined, where Coinbase was in its trajectory and history. Had it been tracking product analytics? Were you there to kick that off? Yeah, let's see. So when I joined, there were about, I would say like four to 500 people at Coinbase. A lot of stuff was like well-established and had an amazing data team already in terms of implementing data pipelines, having like great ways of querying the data and had a number of folks who were already analyzing it and understanding what was happening. And then they were in different teams. So like building different part of the products had like different analysts there. So then when I joined, we kind of formed this data science team that was bringing all the analysts together to analyze all of the customer behavior across all of Coinbase's products. And so at the time, the focus was really on the Coinbase.com app and Pro, the exchange, and understanding how were people using the product and how was that trending over time and what opportunities did that show that we could be building or improving to make the product better for the customers. 
Was there anything novel that you did there because it's crypto? And, you know, to make that a little bit less cryptic of a question, there's just things like in crypto broadly, there's blockchain analytics. You can look at things on chain as well as obviously behavior in the product. Did you guys do anything there or was it really just on product? Oh, you mean like blockchain specific kinds of analysis? Yeah. Or if that factored in at all in any interesting ways. Maybe a little bit less than you might expect because we treated it very similar to other Web2 products where people are going to a web interface to use the product and make trades and buy and sell different kinds of crypto. And so I think the extent that we was looking at what are the different kinds of tokens people were buying and does that signal maybe what other kinds of tokens people will want to buy in the future. But that's like the same as buying other consumer products as well is like, is it similar? So there wasn't as much, I guess, very specific, like different kinds of analysis that it only applied to crypto. It was, I mean, it's all broadly like trying to understand what are people doing? What are their motivations? One of the very first projects we did when I joined was try to understand the different personas of different users by their behaviors, not by like their demographics, but by like different kinds of activity profiles and say, okay, here's what like one type of power user looks like. Here's what someone who is doing something just every once in a while kind of looks like in terms of their activities. So it's similar to other consumer web products of just trying to understand once we have profiles of activity, then we can think about, okay, which ones do we want to really serve and focus on? And then like what we need to build to make those folks have even better experience with the product. So I guess I would say it's similar to other products. I love that example you gave of using analytics to paint almost like personas, because typically the way that's approached is extremely qualitatively. It's almost like people are just interviewing customers and trying to invent this cookie cutter, (laughs) I don't know, ensemble of a bunch of different customer types. And it just always seems really challenging. It seems really smart to do it from data. Did you end up feeling like that was a great approach and that was really helpful form factor or approach? Yeah. I mean, I had also done that when I was at Medium and it was so helpful. I was like, okay, this is one of the first things we got to do when I joined Coinbase. And I think the reason why it's helpful is first, it can surface different profiles of behavior you didn't expect. Because usually anyone at a company like this, you're talking to your customers and you have a story, you're already kind of telling about who your customers are. But then when you start from the data and just see what are the natural groupings of activities that surface, you find other kinds of folks you didn't even realize, or you find like a group of folks who you thought were all different, but they're all using your product or service in the same way. And it's helpful to first just know that that's what they're doing. And it just changes the way you think about what you're building. And then also it helps to prioritize who you're building for. So like we would create different groups of people and then we could look at them all and we would say, oh, these folks are doing it this way, but like we think the future is really for this other kind of a profile of user. And so we can spend a lot of our time with the design research team, like talking to that other group of users. And then when we're trying to understand are things performing well over time? We don't just look at the overall trend across all users, but we can look at what's the trend among like this group of people who we are really hoping that we're building for. And so even if it's like successful or even if it's not working for one group of people, it actually really helps with this other group of people. Then we're like, okay, this is successful because it's achieving what we want with this particular group of folks that we want to focus on. So I think that's where it can become the most powerful. 
That's fascinating. Okay, well, thank you for indulging me. We can move on back to Goldfinch. As you were talking about before we hit record, I think an interesting approach for this would be, I've now been a part of multiple protocols from inception all the way through launch, but from the outside looking in, as an investor, as an advisor to that team, I thought it'd be really interesting knowing that Goldfinch was founded middle of 2020. You guys have been building for, let's just say, around 18 months. You guys are getting close to launch. It'll be interesting to just go chronologically. And so I wanted to ask just when did you or your co-founders, what was the initial seed of the idea? Because as we'll uncover as we go a little bit deeper, this is a really big idea and it's very novel. And I think it takes a lot of confidence and a very high caliber of people to execute this. Did it start out as a big idea? Did it start as a small idea? What was that origin? Yeah, let's see. The way I would say it started out with us seeing what was happening in crypto and in DeFi specifically and feeling like, oh, there's a lot of infrastructure in place here. DeFi can be having a much bigger impact out in the real world and having the sense that a lot of what was going on were different protocols, sort of like self-referential, like all kind of very contained within crypto. And my co-founder Blake and I, we just felt like one of the powers of crypto in the future and like Web3 in general is it can really help people around the world and expand access to capital. And we felt like the pieces are in place here. Like the industry could be doing things out in the real world and trying to think, okay, what's the key part now to actually get that impact happening beyond the sort of central circular referential like crypto space. And we thought that DeFi lending was the key part of it because we saw that Compound and Aave were doing so well, but even then it, no one else outside of crypto can use it. And we thought like that is the key. If we can figure out how to make under collateralized, I mean, not collateralized by crypto, but collateralized by other things. If we can unlock that, that's the holy grail to like getting the benefits of crypto out to real people all around the world. And so we started there trying to think through, okay, how do we make that happen? And we had rough ideas of how the actual design of the protocol could work. And we're kind of like that part, we can kind of figure that out. But like the key thing is we need to know who's going to borrow, like who's the initial go to market. We actually just started talking to folks in crypto early on. Like we started talking to miners and traders and like crypto enthusiasts and we we're like so do you want to borrow and what they would tell us in our early research calls was no i don't really need to borrow but like is there a place i can lend i'll provide money and lend capital and we started realizing that there was a lot of demand for the capital side but not as much for the borrowing blake had my co-founder had been sort of involved with kiva for a while super excited about what they do and he thought oh what if we start talking to the kinds of businesses that kiva works with these lending and fintech companies around the world that are looking for capital and then we we started having just talking to like dozens of them and then those phone calls were totally different we would be talking to them and before the end of the call they'd be like okay so like when can i get a loan like when can i borrow and we're like we haven't even started the company yet and then that was pretty clear that we knew exactly who we were going to build for at the same time we were doing all this work on the design of the protocol and how it could work and there was a whole process there of trying to figure out okay what's the initial design that we can work with just to get things going and then like what are the holes we'll have to fill in later and yeah that's sort of how the initial idea came about for those calls i mean it sounds like very quickly you just felt like you had found a fit in terms of you hadn't built it yet but you knew exactly who needed it who wanted it and who you could get access to it how quickly did that click in place was that within minutes of you getting on the first call did that kind of build over time we kind of reached out within like folks that we already knew just trying to get connected with anyone in the space i think we talked to like two different places and had like 30 minute calls. And by the end of the 30 minutes, 
it was very clear that raising capital was like their biggest pain point as a company. And by the end of those two calls, they were like, when can we borrow money? They just right away within 30 minutes, basically asking to be one of our first customers. And then they even started introducing us to other folks. And so early on, we initially saw like very clearly, these are the customers because they were introducing us to like other potential customers. And then we started building like a large network of folks all within this emerging market space that all seemed to like kind of know each other. And that was where it was pretty clear that even before we started writing a single line of code, we had 10 customers lined up just like waiting for the product to be ready to go. And so that was like a, we know that there's like some fit here at least to start. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the clearest examples or stories I've heard of just finding a perfect fit where one, you're hearing resoundingly back from customers. Yes, we want this one. Can we get it now? But two, no one that you interview as a potential customer refers other potential customers to talk to you. So that's super novel. I think it would be helpful to go a little bit deeper for people. You and I have talked before a little bit about why the emerging markets is such a tough place for entrepreneurs to be able to raise capital. Help paint that picture for people listening, because I think obviously for people listening here in the States or in any generally developed country where you just have raising capital, borrowing capital is relatively easy. I think they might not understand or grasp why that would be so difficult, whether it's sharing stories or just stats. Talk a little bit about why these founders and these companies have had such a challenge raising capital locally. Well, I would say there's like three components to it at kind of like a high level economic view. One is that in a lot of these markets, the governments offer high yield government bonds. And so the banks in these markets are perfectly happy to take bank deposits and go get these bonds. And they're not as interested in lending out locally. And so businesses that have great track records and great businesses still have trouble getting loans from the local banks because those banks are happy just to get the high yield government bonds. And then also, just broadly speaking, the capital markets are relatively underdeveloped in these markets where there's just like less capital. There aren't like these vibrant sort of VC or angel networks happening in these markets. And so they usually need to look to foreign investors to get the capital that they need. And then talking to a number of other Western investors, for example, that are interested potentially investing in emerging markets. There's a couple areas. One is that they're just like less familiar with the market. So they're kind of like hesitant to jump in. Someone who's investing in the US is like hesitant to like jump right into like Kenya or Nigeria or Indonesia. And then also there's a lot of hurdles. Like you have to really understand the local legal jurisdictions to alone and provide capital in these places. And how do you pursue legal recourse if something happens with the loan? And so it requires like a lot of work. And that's why the kinds of folks that end up providing these loans are big institutions, like really big funds. And they need to write $50 million plus checks because they have a whole group of lawyers who are understanding the legal sort of systems in these other places to make it worth their time to go in there. And so you have smaller businesses in these countries that are looking for capital, but because the local capital markets are not as well developed and the banks are more interested in the government bonds and then the institutional investors from abroad really need to write bigger checks to make it worth all the time that they spend doing those loans, it just becomes really difficult for them to get the capital. 
I want to talk about some of the big ideas in Goldfinch and the protocol and what you're building. And one of those is we've danced around it a little bit, but this idea of importance of borrowing crypto without crypto collateral. So one of the questions that I guess I want to ask is like in these calls you were initially having, did you bring up the prospect of were people comfortable borrowing crypto? Was that a thing you explored and then you later realized, oh no, they just want local currency? What did that look like? Yeah. So when we were talking to these businesses to see if they would be interested in using a protocol, we were trying to understand that. And one of the key parts was there's different layers of it, which is like, would they be willing to borrow Bitcoin in Ethereum? And like, absolutely not. They were not interested in that. But then it was like, would you be willing to borrow stable coins like USDC, like USD pegged? And they were open to doing that. Once you explained it. <laughs> Once we explained it, and some of them were familiar with it as well, because stablecoins are becoming popular in a lot of these markets as well. But they were willing to do that because they are already used to receiving USD denominated loans, just like fiat. And going into crypto, like they had some questions about, oh, what are the exchange rate risks on USDC? Like, is it definitely pegged to the dollar or not? And so there was some education there to help them get comfortable with it. But one of the most positive signs we found was we were just concerned whether they would be willing to deal with crypto and like set up MetaMask and do like all of this crypto stuff. And they were like perfectly willing to do that as long as it meant that they could get the capital that they needed. So we definitely were trying to understand what was their willingness to jump through hoops in order to participate. And it was that they weren't going to take Bitcoin or Ethereum, but they were happy to take stable coins like USDC. Yeah. And so I'm guessing that was the solution that you ended up with is basically you're lending out or you're paying out USDC, some sort of stable coin. Yeah. So the way that it works is the borrower goes to the protocol and they receive USDC. They need to borrow USDC and they pay back USDC into the protocol. But then all of the borrowers that we're talking to, they're getting accounts set up in exchanges like Binance and Coinbase and Kraken. Like all of these exchanges now are supporting a lot more of these markets around the world. And so they just hook up their bank account and they receive USDC into the exchange and they convert it to fiat or their local currency. And then they take that local currency out into their local bank. Yeah, that's super interesting. The other piece of this, and this is a really big idea, and I want to try to flesh this out for people because I think it may not be immediately obvious, but one of the things that's really novel about Goldfinch is you guys are trying to be the largest truly decentralized lender in the history of the world. And today, if you look at how lending is traditionally done, it is never decentralized and it is always incredibly centralized where you have one central authority, typically a department of analysts, <laughs> credible analysts and lawyers that are putting together these contracts. That seems really ambitious. How did that come up? And was there ever debate around how centralized or decentralized to make that? Well, there was ever debate about whether to make it centralized or decentralized. Like the beauty of crypto is all totally decentralized. And so the question was always, okay, we know it has to be decentralized, but how do you make this thing work in a decentralized way? And I kind of think of it as like, maybe individual banks are centralized, but we still have a broad banking system with like many banks all around the world and they're all doing their own things. And then even within those banks, there are different departments focused on different sectors and areas. And so how do we take this concept of different folks all around the world that have different expertise and different areas that they focus on and sort of help organize that kind of system into a protocol that can enable all of them to act. And so that's sort of the 
approach that we're taking with Goldfinch is this idea that you can have lots of different folks who are all spending their time focused on different areas with different expertise and then create a place where they can bring that expertise and they focus on the specific kinds of borrowers that they know and they help get the right level of capital and the right credit to those folks and then you bring them all together in one system and so the net result is you have all these different folks in different places doing their own different types of credit analyses and it all comes together into one system. So that's sort of like how we approached it. So maybe to restate it, you guys weren't like, how do we create a new lender? You're literally bootstrapping a marketplace or a network or an ecosystem of basically people that are willing to lend. It could be different things, different types of businesses, which is fascinating. Talk a little bit about just the mechanics and you can get as technical or as not technical as you want to, because I know it can be pretty nuanced, but talk a little bit about the mechanics of how that works. Because I think when you hear it described, one, it makes a lot of sense. And it's also this aha, like why has this never happened before? And yet can only be built in crypto. So that'd be interesting to explore that. Yeah, I guess you'd be kind of like the mechanics of how the protocol works and how the different kind of pieces fall into place. Yeah. And maybe just to set that up, give a real world scenario. It's like, let's imagine this is an entrepreneur from Kenya that's going and trying to raise $15,000 for a local business. So they go, they submit this application on the platform. What happens next and how does that get greenlit? And what does that look like? What does that process look like? What's interesting is there's multiple levels of borrowing that's happening. And I think we can hinge the story around a credit fund because that's sort of the folks who are participating right now is take a credit fund, for example, AlmaVest. AlmaVest is this credit fund. And actually earlier this week, they just raised $10 million through the protocol. And just to describe who they are, they are a credit fund that is experienced with evaluating these different fintech businesses around the world. So for example, like one business they worked with is a company called Oya in Ghana. And what they do is they provide loans to to small, medium-sized businesses in, in Africa. And so then what you have is a credit fund who is looking for capital, and then they extend a loan to a business like Oya in Ghana, who is then working with lots of great businesses who are looking for capital to grow their businesses. So there's like multiple layers of the borrowers here. But the great thing about working with a credit fund like AlmaVest is they have this great track record of finding amazing businesses around the world that are looking for credit lines and they can put a lot of capital to work. So they can raise $10 million and then extend multiple loans out to folks after that point. So the way that the protocol works is AlmaVest goes to the community and they say, we want $10 million. We want a $10 million loan, in their case, with a 12.5% interest rate. And they propose it to the community of their backers. So the backers is like the main participant that understands who are these different potential borrowers to receive credit lines. And the backers, they sign an NDA with AlmaVest and they get access to a data room and then they enter a chat room just with the folks who run AlmaVest. And they are asking them all these questions to understand how does AlmaVest approach their the loans that they give out What's their philosophy? And this is all on platform, just to clarify really quickly. Well, this is all through whatever AlmaVest wants to use. So they've used like a Telegram channel in the past. They set up a data room and a Notion doc. And this is kind of the beauty of crypto, which is that they're doing all this stuff all on their own with their own infrastructure. And they're talking directly to this community of backers. And then what AlmaVest then does is they create what we call a pool on the protocol. And this pool is a place for the backers to say, yep, we're going to put capital in here. And what the backers do is they provide capital. It goes directly to the pool, which all of us has access to. And then in the process, they also sign 
an agreement directly with Almavest. They sign a loan agreement essentially that gives them legal recourse to the capital that that Almavest is expected to pay back. And then the way that the protocol works is each of these pools has two tranches. And so there's a junior tranche that is first loss capital, which means if for whatever reason a borrower doesn't pay back the money, the first folks to lose their money are in the junior tranche. And then there's a senior tranche. So when this community of backers talking to Almavest and they provide capital, they're all providing capital into the junior tranche of that pool. And then what the protocol has is a separate senior pool, which is just taking capital from folks that just want to have it be automatically diversified across different borrower pools. And that senior pool gets automatically allocated by the protocol to the senior tranches of these different pools. And the way it does is it looks at how many of the backers have participated in a particular pool. And if there's a lot of folks who have participated in it, the senior pool will provide more capital into that senior tranche. And it's like an automatic algorithm that's based upon the number of backers. And so the net result is that there's the senior tranche that has capital and that senior tranche will provide 20% of the interest it receives to the backers. So it increases the interest that the backers receive. And that means that the backers are receiving an outsized yield. And that is compensating them both for doing all the work of evaluating these different borrowers and providing the first capital into the pool, as well as taking on higher risk by being the first loss. And so that's sort of like the key part of it is when the senior pool is automatically allocating capital, it makes the economics work for the backers to do all of this work of understanding folks like Amavest and being willing to put in first loss capital. And so the result that happened, for example, earlier this week is the backers provided a bunch of capital and then the senior pool provided additional capital and Amavest was able to get the full credit line that they were looking for. That's so cool. I mean, and I'm sure it's not easy for you to remember all those details and paint that picture because there's quite a lot that's happening there. But it's also very elegant in that it's not all that complicated. I'm curious, um, how long did it take you guys to arrive at an elegant solution and align all those incentives? Is this something that you did in a sprint, you did leading up to the white paper, or is this something that you've literally been iterating on the entire time you've been building out the protocol? It has been pretty iterative. So what we started out doing when we first started the company was just, can we just build a pool that has money in it that we can get one of the early customers to try out and like connect with MetaMask and just get capital from it. And so like there wasn't any of this logic. Basically at the very beginning, we were just doing like test versions of things to see, can we even get capital in there and can folks draw down. And then as we were going, we started to get more clarity of like exactly what are the problems here? What are the challenges? Like what incentivizes these different kinds of folks to participate, which helped us clue in on exactly what are the pieces of logic that make it all fit together. So I would say at the beginning, we had like broad strokes, things figured out enough that we could build a minimum viable version of it. And then over time, getting more and more detailed until the white paper was published. I want to ask a separate question about the white paper in just a sec, but I want to ask a meta question, which is that initial version obviously sounds very simplistic. You guys have iterated on that. How do you approach when you draw the line and say, okay, we're ready to launch, knowing that you're going to continue iterating after that? Have you used a framework? Is that just a discussion? Because that seems very challenging because it's something, especially here, it's very nuanced and intricate. How do you decide when it's ready to ship? It's done. Yeah, it's interesting with crypto versus like a traditional Web2 product where crypto is a lot harder to be super iterative. You have to be really careful and have to 
do things in larger blocks at a time because there's so much work that goes into it and there's so much more risk about getting having mistakes. But the general framework we would take is say in the next iteration of this, what's the key thing we need to learn? What's the main thing that we have to figure out? And it's usually like, will this kind of a participant be willing to do this? Or is this actually going to encourage these other folks to participate in this way? And then the question is, okay, what is the smallest possible version that is going to allow us to answer like this very specific question? And then that's what we would build, like build everything that we need to answer this question and like nothing else. That would be how we would do it. And that's still kind of how it's been going up until this point of like fully launching. Yeah, it's really smart. And that's obviously a huge parallel there between raising venture capital, where the idea is, what is this fundraising unlock? What are you going to learn with this capital to then go and raise additional capital? I want to ask, kind of switch to that and ask a question around raising capital. So I want to just ask us in the broad sense, because I know you founded a company before. Was that company in crypto, not in crypto? No, I have attempted to found multiple other companies in the past and like none of them did very well at all. This is the fifth time I've tried starting a company and this is the only one that like really, really got off the ground. So yeah. Wow. Okay. I have to ask a question on that. What did you learn? That's staggering because I think that Goldfinch will be incredibly successful. Just knowing about you, knowing about the quality of the people on the team, I think you guys are going to have a lot of success. You've now done this five times. You've had this time take off. What did you learn from trying and failing four times? I learned how many different things are just required. Say, what are the things? Like all of the things that are super important is like having great people to work with, with shared values and like shared set of goals so that we're like for sure on the same page of what we're trying to build. And then I would say in the past, I was too lazy about doing the market research early on. And I think we had like 100, 200 calls before this one, just to make sure we knew exactly who the customers were gonna be, like exactly who we're building for. And like doing just like the hard work of research early on to know that there's like really a market here. And then also when it comes to fundraising, for example, it's also important to go into a large market that is gonna be compelling for investors to invest into. Or it's actually not that raising money is necessary, but then there has to be another path to starting a company if it's not going to be in a market that is compelling to VCs who need to see astronomical returns. Like a coffee shop is a great business to start, but you just have to make sure you have the capital. You need to start that in a different way. And I think in the past, I was trying to start things, hoping that like VCs would want to invest in it, but they're just like not big markets. And so there are like a bunch of those pieces. And then also like knowing what we want to build and how it was going to work. And so I think the stuff that I learned was there were just like these big core critical parts of the past times that I tried to start companies that they weren't in place. And so then this time I was like, okay, we got to make sure if we need to raise funding, which we needed to, it's going to be a big enough market that investors are going to be interested in it. And we know who the customers are going to be and we're aligned on our values and our goals for the company. And so all of those things have to be aligned for us to even kind of get started. Yeah. I love that list you started off with of even just that note, because I've also found that extremely rare, just talking and looking at, talking with founders and looking at a bunch of different companies to invest in. It is actually extremely rare to find people that have done even a hundred customer calls because that is like a marathon in so many ways. And it's funny because actually now that you said that, it makes me immediately think anytime I've ever, or we've ever, if it's a part of a fund I'm part of, we've invested in a company that's done that amount of market research, that always tends to go really well. So it's surprising. Surprisingly correlated, I think, with success after that of just putting in that groundwork. Yeah, I mean, 
in the process of all those calls, we changed what we were planning to build and how we were going to build it and who we were going to focus on. So it totally had a big impact on what we ended up doing because we learned a lot through it. So, I mean, it's like a lot of work to spend all that time up front, but it's critical, I think. Yeah. So I want to ask a question. What was it like to raise capital in this market for a company? And I know one of the firms that you raised from is A16Z, incredibly well-respected. So just general thoughts on A16Z. What has it been like to work with them and the team there? They're great. It's a combination of really smart people to talk to. Ariana is the main person that we work with there and she's great. And there's just like so many people on the A6NZ team to talk to who are great. And then they have all these resources as well, which is also good. And then they have this great reputation as well that it just lends in like immediate credibility with other folks. So it's been really great working with them. And I think it's also interesting because in the process of fundraising, both when we initially did it for our pre-seed and the seed in like recent raises, it's a similar thing where investors that have high conviction really stand out like A16Z. And at the time it feels like everybody else like said no, except for them. We only need one great investor who really has conviction. And so it means a lot when an investor demonstrates that. And we also had the same thing in our pre-seed round. And it also comes after, I don't know, we get tons of no's from everybody else until you get like the one yes from an investor with high conviction and really appreciate that too. Like they believe in what we're doing. I feel the same way about all of our investors and it makes a big difference for us. So yeah. Yeah, it's really well said. I think the best quote I've heard on that is raising a round just requires a market of one, just requires one yes, but I take a lot of no's to get to that one yes. And then there are different types of yeses to your point. There's the yes of just like, yeah, I have some capital. And then there's the, I really want to invest in what you're building in your team and be a part of this. I want to ask kind of a naive question around the white paper, which is, so I've never gone through the process of putting together a white paper myself. And you would think, or one would think maybe that that's just almost like an existential thought exercise. You just have this initial idea, you have all these customer calls, then you go and you spend a week writing out what this is. I imagine that's not it at all in that you're potentially building in parallel, solving some of the technical things before you publish the white paper. Can you just give a sense, even just at a really high level of like what the sequence is and when you're ready to actually write that white paper and how that comes together? So let's see, it was kind of a gradual process with many folks. I don't want to make it sound like we just wrote it because it was kind of community driven. We were getting feedback from all different kinds of folks who were contributing in different ways. And it was really starting out with, I guess the way it worked is early on when we were just doing prototypes, we weren't as worried about the white paper. We had internal like like docs of like, here's kind of like a rough outline of how we think this could work, but we're just going to get a prototype in. But then once we wanted to start bringing more people on, more of the community to get involved, it becomes a lot more important to like build it together, write the white paper together and have this be more of a community oriented thing. So that was where it was like we had certain kind of outlines of how it could work and then start getting multiple people to provide feedback and like digging into different specific areas and then collating it together until we had an initial version of the white paper that we could share with everyone. And I know you guys are now, it's like 1.1. So I'm guessing there's also some sort of dot update rev that can happen on a white paper as well too. Yeah, I mean, now the white paper is also on the GitHub, kind of like open source and people can propose different kinds of changes to it. And I think, yeah, with 1.1, it was recognizing certain things that had to just be changed. I think there was even like a typo. We had to change it, but it's like a different version of the white paper. So yeah, it was from like incorporating even more feedback and then that will just keep happening, especially as we launch the full governance process, which is happening 
now in early 2022 is now there's going to be a whole system for submitting proposals and having like broader votes on exactly how these changes get made. And so those will all get kind of incorporated into future versions of the white paper. Super interesting. Thanks for indulging my curiosity there. Okay, so I'll get out of the weeds now. I want to go way, way back up a little bit more meta and just ask you a couple of questions of what you've learned, what your advice would be for other people that are kind of setting out to build a new protocol. So the first question that I have is knowing, especially now, I didn't know that coming into this, knowing that you've had kind of four tries before at founding a company and you have this one now. And I want to say thank you for sharing that because that's something that I know a lot of people might hold close. I really appreciate, I think everyone listening really appreciates that you're open about that. So thank you. The question I wanted to ask was, what have you learned and what has this process been like for you? Uh, This is both the fifth attempt. You're the CEO. This is a really ambitious project. Just reflect a little bit on what this journey has been like for you and what you've changed or learned, or I don't know, just with the kind of last 18 months have taught you? Let's see. I mean, I guess in the context of starting businesses and in the context of having really, really struggled in the past trying to do so, it feels different this time around. And I think the thing that feels the most different has been seeing the clear demand for it, like having customers like really want to use it and having people just like reaching out about using it and having other customers refer other customers. And that is something that feels a lot pretty different from before because on prior things that I'd worked on, it was the same like, oh, I like to build things. And so I'm going to build things with people that I like working with. But we didn't really know exactly how it was going to end up going out into the market. And then this time it feels different. And I think that is owed a lot to the early work we did into doing market research and actually just like lining up specific customers. That was one of the things I told myself after one of the prior failures is I was like, you know what, next time I start a company, I need to know who all of the initial customers are going to be before I spend like any time working on it. And like, that was like a personal requirement. And then we did that. And then after we did that, just seeing more demand in certain areas and then adapting to like where we're seeing the demand from the market. So I think like, having in the past been in a place where it felt like a struggle to like find who's going to use this, but it seems like it could be really cool, but also I don't know who's going to use it. That was like a big difference this time around. It's like very clear, like the market is like pulling us to build these things for them. And so I think that's what kind of like stands out to me. Which is really gratifying because I've definitely been in positions before where you just feel like you're excited about it. You're giving it your entire best effort to try to make this thing incredible. And it's just like you're running into a wall. (laughs) No one wants it. Yeah. And it feels ultimately like one of those unsolvable problems. I want to ask kind of a two side of the coin question, which is so kind of thinking back over the last 18 months, what's been the most exciting, thrilling part of it for you? And this could be a specific thing you worked on, just like a really memorable moment. And what's maybe a tough lesson that you've learned? And this could be something on the technical side, something just super meta in general. One of the really exciting things that happened was we shared this program that we called Flight Academy, which was a way for backers, folks who are actively evaluating the different pools and which ones to participate in to make a program to help backers understand how to use the protocol and participate in it. And we were planning it out and we're like, okay, we're hoping that we'll have like a few hundred people participate in this and let's like create these educational modules for them. And then like, we should really design this in a way where we could see this getting to like maybe 10,000 people over the next year or two kind of a thing. And then we shared it and it resonated with a bunch of folks. And we had 
go over 30,000 people come in and sign up to participate it like right in the first week. And it was gratifying both just to see how many people were showing up, but they also like really cared about what we were talking about in the story and like this goal of expanding access to capital around the world and like helping real world businesses in emerging markets and all of this was really resonating. And so that was like one of the coolest experience so far in the last 18 months was just seeing how excited people were to participate and having it go way past what our expectations were in that moment. And then they've been like active, like making memes and like creating their own content and helping to like really build out the community. So that has been the most gratifying part of it so far. And then I think the challenges. Is that your question? Or- yeah, I think it just something I always try to reflect on, just kind of thinking back in time is, I don't know, just making sure, obviously there's stuff that goes really well, but also just like, what did you not expect that hit you in the face or you encountered midway through solving the problem? Just anything there that was like just a major lesson learned or a major obstacle you had to overcome. Yeah, I would say being in crypto where things aren't regulated and it's unclear what's going to happen in terms of regulation. And we really want to be fully compliant. And it's hard to do that when the laws are in place exactly what's expected, but trying to understand where are we going to be and what do we need to do to be compliant. And we're taking a lot of efforts, for example, like everyone who uses the protocol is going through a KYC process, which is not that common in crypto, but like it's something that we're doing to make sure it's like totally compliant. But one thing is we always have just underestimated how much work that is and what that process is like working with council when they're trying to figure it out alongside us. And so there have been a lot of, oh, shoot moments with lawyers when we're saying this is what we want to do. And they're just like, we don't know how you can get comfortable with that until we rearrange things a little bit to get it into a better place. And so we have just been consistently underestimating the time involved to go through with legal counsel, how to approach different things. And like, the amount of like rethinking on different aspects and that amount of work on its own is like a significant part. And like one of our biggest challenges is like how to get to a place where we feel like, yeah, okay, this is now a compliant way of going about this process. Makes so much sense. And obviously you guys are pioneering something. So I totally know what those calls are like when you're kind of talking about something that's truly novel with lawyers or a legal team. And they're like, I don't even know where to start. (laughs) It's like I have to take a second to sit down, wrap their heads around the problem. This has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for sharing this. I love that you guys are building something that honestly feels like I think what crypto in general has wanted for a long time, which is one, a massive impact on the actual real world, including people that may not be all that interested or all that crypto native or all that just even part of the crypto community, the fact that the world at large can benefit from it. Any closing words, closing thoughts before we wrap up? I'm super excited about it. I feel like it's time for DeFi and crypto to start having this impact. Like I really do think over the next year, over 2022, this is going to become more and more of a thing across Goldfinch, other protocols as well. And I hope that like we can help show that this is the next wave of crypto that really has this kind of impact. So yeah. And that lending can be done truly in a decentralized way as much as it can in a protocol. So for anyone listening, I know they can find Goldfinch online at goldfinch.finance. What's your handle on Twitter? How can people follow you on Twitter? It's goldfinch underscore phi. Okay. Goldfinch underscore phi. And how do people follow you as well too? On Twitter, I'm at Saul, S-A-L-L. Thank you so much, Mike. This has been a fantastic chat. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening. For links to everything we discussed, as well as the full show notes and transcript, visit outlieracademy.com 76. 
At outlieracademy.com, you can also find more incredible interviews with the founders of Superhuman, Levels, Rally, Common Stock, and Primal Kitchen, as well as best-selling authors and many of the world's smartest investors. You can now also find us on YouTube at youtube.com slash outlieracademy. On our channel, you'll find all of our full-length interviews as well as short clips from every single episode, including this one. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn under the handle Outlier Academy. From our entire team at Outlier Academy, we hope you enjoyed the show, and we hope to see you right here next week on Infinite Games.